0: Hello and welcome to Banking Transform. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. The pandemic certainly changed the business landscape for all industries, possibly none more than financial services. Already being impacted by non-traditional players, financial institutions had to shift almost instantly to satisfy customers who could no longer visit their local branch and had to do business digitally. As we start off a new year, financial institutions of all sizes are having to reassess their business plans and their business models for a future where digital engagement will prevail, but physical banking is still an important component. What will 2021 look like? What major shifts will occur that will last into the future? What could surprise us in the ecosystem where change is really the only constant? To get a perspective on the future of banking and fintech, I'm joined today by Ron Shevlin, the Managing Director of Fintech Research at Cornerstone Advisors. Ron is the author of the book Smarter Bank and is a senior contributor to the Forbes. Ron is also ranked among the top banking influencers globally and is a frequent speaker at financial events. So, welcome to the show, Ron. Uh, First of all, Happy New Year. I realize that we are in our second week of 2021, but many in the banking industry are still trying to process what happened last year and how it impacts what may happen going forward. You recently wrote a, a series of articles for Forbes on the top five fintech and banking trends for 2021, as well as who the winners and losers from 2020 were and mergers and acquisitions you might want to see next year. So I thought that's where we'd go today because I think it's a good way to start off the year. It's a good way for people to get a grasp of, you know, from your perspective, what they've got to really be focused on. Because I think with all this going on in the industry and outside the industry, it's so easy to get distracted and so easy to lose focus. And, you know, we talk about it often that we don't have to all look at the major trends that everybody talks about in the industry as much as understanding how the impact an individual organization. How an organization, a small credit union in Ohio is gonna need to react to what's going on versus a fairly large mid-tier bank in Arizona. That's very different perspectives and different prioritizations. So in your article of 2021 trends, you mentioned that while you're not a fan of calling anything the year of fill in the blanks, that you really saw this year is the, the year of the value chain disruption. Can you elaborate a little bit on what that means?
1: Yeah, sure. So first of all, I was kind of taken off on, if you've read in the past 15 years, how every year seems to be, it's the year of the customer. (laughs) Right. And it's either always is or never is, whichever way you want to look at it. But so the, the idea of the value chain disruption is, look, you know, I've been very skeptical over the past few years of all these claims of disruption in the industry, and I've been dis- dismissive of it mostly because I see a lot of what has happened until recently as really being very front end, very veneer type of fixes, user interface types of you know changes. And it's great to change the user interface and have a better interface for consumers but the challenges for the financial services industry, I mean, go so deep into the infrastructure, the policies, the regulations, the, you know, the, so when I keep hearing, oh, banking is disrupted, Um, I won't say transformed because I think there's a name of a blog that's called Banking Transformed. So I'll stay away (laughs) from the transformed name. But when I keep, you know, heard, oh, banking is disrupted, it's like, no, you you changed the stupid interface. You didn't really change anything. And I think what's has been brewing and I think coming to a head last year and and will happen this year is really more deeper structural changes in the industry, which is why I say more you know, change of the value chain, going back deeper. So I know you're going to want to go into some detail on some of these, but just to kind of paint the picture at a high level, you know, from a consumer perspective, changing the interface on how they interact with their bank is nice. But if you follow the flow of the money, it really goes back to payroll. And not a lot has changed in terms of, you know, how people get their money, which is why things like Payday lending has persisted because we haven't changed payroll. So that would be, you know, an example of that. Another example from the small business side, you know, it's great to enable small businesses to apply for a loan in 30 minutes or 7 minutes or whatever you want to, you know, brag about with an online, you know, digital loan process, But why is it that they need that loan? Well, they need that loan because they have cash flow and and payment problems and payment processing issues that the thing goes back so far into their value chain. And of course, you know, you look at bank infrastructure and a lot of banks have talked about core modernization for the past couple of years, but- You know, you go to a CEO of a bank or credit, you can say, yeah, you know, you want to change your core, it's going to be a two to three year process, and you're basically going to have to put all innovation on hold for that time frame, ain't going to work. So that's what I mean by kind of value chain, that the changes that are, you know, happening now are, are not the front end user interface types of things. Those things have happened, they're great, but, you know, the really impactful stuff is going to be this value chain disruption, you know, it's probably be the decade of value chain disruption in financial services. Certainly not anything that's going to happen, you know, once and done in the course of 2021.
0: So it's interesting, Ron. In your article, you really started with the small business value chain disruption or a transformation or whatever we want to call it. But how do you see that really change? Because you know, we talked about it quite a bit last year that this the small business, the world of small business, really changed dramatically in the banking industry, with certainly with the PPP loans. But more importantly, it's been an area that's, I think, been relatively ignored in the past. And not just how the consumer, the small business interacts with their bank, but as you mentioned, the the value chain overall around how does a bank really structure their small business portfolio and the way they serve the small business marketplace. So can you talk a little bit about what you see happening in the small business world next year then?
1: Yeah. You remember the analogy of like the the blind man looking at the elephant or blind men and they, they feel different phases of it and describe the elephant very differently. Well, small business is the elephant and everybody kind of describes the the situation from their own perspective. And the bank perspective is is kind of narrow. It's either small business has a lending need that I can fulfill or I can be their bank, you know, and provide their deposit products and maybe some treasury management, cash management services. But the challenge for small businesses you know, why is it that they may need a loan or a merchant cash advance? It's because they've got cash flow problems that stem from managing their money in the industry that they have and can stem from payment problems. They, you know, are accepting checks, sending invoices that don't get paid, days sales outstanding that, uh, you know, are, are incredibly high. And then, of course, you know, don't even think about putting a pandemic into that situation yeah. uh, and what it does to them. And so, You know, from the banking perspective, what's really kind of changing is, you know, there are some some players that are really trying to serve the whole elephant. You know, if you look at companies like Stripe and Square, you know, to a certain extent, they started off life with a fairly narrow value proposition to to the small businesses. It was really about payment processing, payment acquisition, and, and so forth. But those companies in particular you know, have really evolved their vision of how to serve small businesses. Gusto, another good example, coming at it from more of an HR perspective, to being a more, you know, holistic provider of data and money movement and money services that go beyond just sort of payment processing or merchant acquisition. You know, and the banks are, you're right, they've been slow to this. And part of it, I think, Jim, stems from a, You know, a cultural view of the small business as being very risky, so why do we want to loan to these people? And, hey, we make our money by loans, you know, that all those other non-interest income services that we can provide are nice, but they pale in comparison to what we make from an interest perspective, so why do I want to get into that game? And so I think that's what's kind of evolving, and why I say the you know the value chain is it's these providers going deeper into the small business beyond just the outward looking banking interface, and more than just cash management, but you know payments management, HR management, and really trying to provide a more holistic set of services. And you know I think to a large extent, a lot of banks are going to get squeezed out of their uh, small business relationships because they you know, tend to poo-poo the non-lending side of it and, and don't see the opportunity, you know, with the other types of services.
0: You know, it's interesting because you bring up the whole issue of lending and the stripes and the, you know, I'm going to use the example of PayPal in my own situation that, you know, it's the way you view, as you said, the customer. PayPal says, okay, we're going to take in your inflows and you, hopefully you're going to use, you know, PayPal as your way of paying people, which I do. And then all of a sudden, they know everything about my business from a transactional as well as a functional standpoint. They know my flows. They know everything, which my current financial institution, my traditional financial institution doesn't know. And so what does PayPal do? They come out and they offer additional services. They offer credit on demand. They may offer instant bridge loans, which my financial institution currently would never think of doing. They they don't come out and do that. They think of it as a loan, while PayPal sees it as credit. And there's a very big difference between those two, and they all are based on the insight and the information in the back office. So if you don't use the data and information to understand the businesses, you won't be there when they need them, or even better, be there before the person knows you need them.
1: Well, that's the key, Jim. That's the key is that you know even if the bank today says well, this is a good opportunity, we want to get into it. Well, how do they get that information? Well, they have a set of forms by which they ask the small business to f- go fill out. Where meanwhile, the squares, the stripes, the, the the PayPals of the world and Amazon in particular, especially if you're an Amazon merchant, they have that information already. They're not asking for you to the small business to go fill out a bunch of forms and in three weeks we'll get back to you. They're able to more proactively provide that. And so it's a really a cultural mindset change on the part of the banks just as much as it is a technology change. Well, and, and, and you look at it from the standpoint that for me, if I'm looking for a bridge loan, I'm not looking for a long-term
0: loan. So if I'm paying one, maybe even 2% higher for the PayPal instant access versus going into my bank, asking for a specific amount of funds, if I'm maybe going to get a line of credit, not knowing if I'm going to get approved and then have to wait a couple weeks, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of small businesses say, no, no, you don't understand. I need it now and I'm willing to pay more. And, and what's interesting is, If a normal bank in my lifetime would come out with this product, they would probably offer it at the traditional rate as opposed to, to use your term, the value-based rate that you could actually charge because of the convenience factor. We we talked about in the past, you and I have, about remote deposit capture and how only regions and I think U.S. bank ever charged an inclining are declining, depends on which way you look at, fee based on how quickly you needed the money. Nobody left the bank because they were charged more or less because they were paying a whole lot more than that for ATM transactions or access. So again, you look at, oh, geez, how would the banking world address this issue in a way that PayPal would? They'd probably do it cheaper or differently or slower. As you said, it's a value chain because if you don't look at the inside to deal with the outside, and oh, by the way, this becomes the year of the customer in the small business world, then, which is interesting. Right. So, you, you know, your your second, you know, trend that you mentioned, was around payroll, and you mentioned this in the introduction of this. So, payroll is payroll. I mean, I, I get my check; it gets deposited. I I have access to it. How do you see payroll being disrupted in a value chain perspective?
1: A couple of ways. First of all, I've said for years, I've been very surprised that an Amazon hasn't acquired a company like ADP. It does payroll processing because the further up the value chain you can get from when money goes from wherever it comes from to the consumer, you get better control. Our our friend Richard Crone has a great saying, the one who enrolls is the one who controls. And the idea behind that is if, if you're the one who's, you know, getting things at the source, the enrollment, you know, then you've got better control. And, you know, why, as I alluded to before, why do we have payday loans? We have payday loans because we don't get paid frequently enough because it's simply not, has never been economical to do so. It's 2021, Jim, you know, there's no reason why a company can't push a button at the end of the day and say, "Okay, you worked your eight hours, your 10 hours, whatever it was at whatever number of dollars per hour. Here's your money. You don't have to send out checks and do all this. Now, they have a cash flow problem, but, you know, that's their problem, not our problem as the employees. And so, you know, there's kind of one aspect to it is that, you know, it's, it's enabled the payday lending business to to grow. But there's a lot of other reasons why I think that this disruption happens is because, you know, I've talked a lot over the past couple of years about this idea of deposit disruption yeah. uh, or displacement that, you know, checking accounts have become, uh, you know, paycheck motels, temporary places for people's money to stay before it moves on to better Places, not always bigger places. And so, you know, if you're at the point of payroll, then you can influence where the money goes from the employer. It doesn't all have to go into the checking account that somebody has. They can simply say, okay, Start paying bills directly from the source. Put some of this money here. Put it in quicker. Put it in sooner. There's so many ways. Uh, and, you know, I know the early wage access folks like to talk about themselves as being payroll tech, but that's just a, you know, a potentially small part of it. There's, there's so much that can happen there. The more and more you move up the value chain to the, the source of the money.
0: Well, and it gets to best placement of money, too. So you, And it gets to my your next trend, which is around financial wellness. But, you know, if you have early access to the paycheck and you're immediately dispersing it to the correct places, including a savings application, paying down credit, and, and actually it's the, the money management, money flow process, what ends up happening is, and the concern I have is, and we talked about this before as well, is that if you don't have that type of relationship, you don't know when you've lost the customer. Or you've lost you've lost the relationship. Maybe not the customer. So you know uh, my small business uh, financial institution. They, they still have my deposit accounts. They don't have my relationship. That goes to PayPal. That goes to Acorns. That goes to Robinhood. That goes to other players, and they just don't pay attention. So the biggest concern I have is all these financial institutions say you know actually you know the shifts of money and and the attrition has really gone down. Uh, You know, you've read about this before, too. I'm not too sure if the attrition has gone down. You just may not know that you don't have a customer anymore. Your transactions have gone down. You may look really, and if you look at the transaction,
1: you're going to say, they're going to different places. They're not going, they're going to different financial institutions. The attrition has gone down because technically speaking, People aren't closing out the account exactly but but what's happening is they're you know I literally just completed a study I haven't even published anything on this Jim, and I've also did, did one at the beginning of October and I mean we're gonna we're a situation now where 35% of Americans have more than one checking account almost 10% have three or more wow. you know three or four and, and even more checking accounts And so, yeah, what's happening is, again, the money is flowing from employer into, quote, primary checking account, uh, but then moving somewhere else, you know, very rapidly because there's some reason why, you know, somebody wants to move. It could be because they get better debit card rewards in that second account. They might get better interest rates in that second account. There might be better PFM tools. And, you know, the other one, and we we should not discount it, it's not a huge percentage of consumers, but... It's 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 in there. It's early access to the paycheck. It's what Chime yep. is doing, Viro. you know, and, yep. and early access to the stimulus funds, to the tax refund. It's that early access. And, you know, that's a policy decision. It's not even a technology decision. It's a simply a decision that the provider makes. And, you know, it's funny when uh, the other day when there was an article in The Wall Street Journal about how Current was bragging about how they were getting it um you know the the paychecks uh, the stimulus checks rather early access and then i got a call from green dot saying ooh we're doing it too we're doing it too and then a wall street journal article comes out and they they quote somebody who's head of some you know consumer advocate group who says well it's nice but i don't think it's really a choice of of uh, institutions I was like, wrong. It's absolutely a, a, a choice of yeah. institutions yep. because it's important to somebody, and that's another big thing, Jim. That that's you know longer term trend that I think a lot of the banks have got to wake up to is that people are making choices of banks because of features. Yep. You know, it's that featureization. it's those hooks yep. and they're, you know, opening up accounts in these various providers and inst- can't, come all, can't call them all institutions because these fintechs aren't technically institutions, but they're opening up these accounts. Meanwhile, you know, the, what are the mid-sized banks and credit unions doing advertising, you know, oh, we have great service. Nobody cares about that
0: anymore. You know, what happened with COVID, with people being shut down, they become much more aware Of the differences between their services and the way the companies deal, you're making decisions based on how easy it is for me to get a carry-out meal, how easy is it for me to get grocery shopping done, and oh by the way, what's the best time to get it done? How easy was it for me to transfer money or to open an account or to take deposits that I used to do in a branch? And that awareness level as it goes up makes it so these things that used to be little differentiators. I mean, look at the growth of current, look at the growth of Chime. It's extraordinary. And there will be many financial institutions going, yeah, but the average balance isn't that high. But the this, that. But the reality is, since they're totally digital banks, guess what? That financial needs, those balance sheets and income statements are a whole lot different than legacy banks. And there's a lot of people involved. The one part of the industry that's pretty much gone out of business has been the payday lenders. Why? Because there's a whole lot better way to get your money earlier and get access to it than it is to go and pay an extraordinary fee to get that, you know, and that gets into financial wellness, which is your third projection around the whole financial wellness. And I'm going to expand that a little bit more and say, you know, what does that mean with regard to, you know, physical wellness as well, meaning physical wellness and, and they can be combined. So how have you seen the transformation of, uh, the financial wellness component of the value chain?
1: Well, first thing I tell you, I, I really hate the term wellness. I don't know, maybe financial health isn't any better. And I'm not even sure that that's a better term either. It's really performance. And performance has a spectrum a scale. And at the low end of performance, you have health problems. At the somewhere about the middle on up, it's really just a matter of degrees of performance. And so I think that's part of the shift and change that has to come from sort of a mindset perspective here, because we tend to think of financial health as this binary thing. You either have financial health or you don't. And that's not the case. The other big shift that that needs to take place is this sort of inherent belief that, anybody with a certain income level or below has bad financial health or wellness. Right, And that's simply not true, Right, nor is it true that just because you make $150,000 a year that you have good financial health. So it's really about behaviors. The other change that, that needs to take place in this space is gotta get over this, this focus on financial literacy. Literacy is meaningless. Look, I don't know the first thing about how my car works, but I'm a pretty good driver, at least with my driving record. And, and so same thing with finances. My financial health is pretty good, but I bet you I wouldn't score very well on a lot of these literacy tests. I don't have to make enough money to, and more importantly, I have the right financial behaviors. You know me, I don't spend any money on anything. So, you know, it's my wife who spends all the money. So, that, that's my financial wellness problem. But the reason that I kind of put financial health as one of the big trends for 2021 is a couple of things I think is going to happen. One is from a regulatory perspective. I absolutely expect the new administration to kind of relook at the old CRA type of regulations and realize that those things are really outdated and too narrowly focused on lending and are going to force financial institutions to prove that they are positively impacting the financial health of their customers and from a credit union perspective, their members. Uh, so I think that's number one, which I think is gonna force a more rigorous form of financial health scoring. And anybody you who know, wants to look more at that really just goes to Financial Health Network, Jen Tisha and, her, and her team, yep. did an amazing job w- with all of that. The other thing is that if you look at the financial health space, there are a gazillion providers in the space half of a gazillion who are actually doing something with financial health, the other half who just claim to be part of financial health. But among those who are legitimately doing things, you know, you realize that because financial health has a, again, it's, this, that's, it's an elephant. that has so many different aspects to it that all these various providers contribute to. There's very little coordination or integration across these players. And so I do think we're going to see some players emerge providing, you know, financial health platforms, you know, ways of really integrating the various components of a lot of these fintech providers' financial health offerings. And you know, I've talked to some that are, you know, got the vision to do that. 2021 might not be the year they actually kind of launch and, and do some of this stuff, but you know, I think there are some players who like a stripe and a square, uh, rather stripe and a, a plaid and finicity who could, you know, really do some good work. MX, I shouldn't leave them out of the equation. They've really kind of taken the lead on a lot of this stuff. And so I think we're going to see, you know, these financial health platforms emerge along with a, a more rigorous way of scoring that's going to be driven by regulatory requirements.
0: Um, we're going to take a little break here and get a word from our sponsors that make this whole podcast possible. So we'll come right back. Is your organization trying to embrace digital banking transformation in 2021? Are you trying to elevate the customer experience? Figure out what technology you want to implement to improve the customer journey. Look at data analytics to really better understand and personalize the customer experience, and you're trying to make it so that more of your employees can buy into and be part of your digital banking transformation. If this sounds like you, I ask you to reimagine banking with our newest podcast sponsor, Microsoft. They give you the opportunity to unlock new opportunities at speed throughout innovative business models, deliver differentiated customer experiences across channels, products and services and redefine new ways of banking. Microsoft and its partner ecosystem help banks to achieve differentiation through sustainable growth, streamlining core systems, reducing cost and risk, and delighting customers and employees. If you're in the midst of a journey trying to figure out what to do next, maybe trying to find out what other organizations are doing to lift up their experience level? I really encourage you to look at Microsoft. For more information, visit Microsoft.com slash financial services. So we're back again with Ron Chevlin from Cornerstone Advisors. Ron has written a series of articles for Forbes around the projection for 2021, as well as who are the winners and losers for 2020 is. And also he discussed some of the uh, things we can look forward to maybe with regard to acquisitions, mergers that may happen in the coming year. So Ron, glad to have you back and I want to continue with the projections. You know, the, the fourth projection you had for 2021 was around fintech as a service. You now We've heard of banking as a service and you've written about fintech as a service what does it actually mean
1: and if i'm a small financial institution why do i care to your first question what does it actually mean i have no idea i really have absolutely <laughs> n- no clue what fintech as a service is at this point no i'm only half serious um i mean i'm joking but i still think it's kind of an emerging idea here you know we know what banking as a service is you know, somebody's providing you know the license, the the capability to have a, create accounts and provide all that kind of service to somebody who isn't a bank. But you flip the, the coin around, you've got a lot of banks who you know are looking to do fintech partnerships and dealing with a core system infrastructure that makes it really, really difficult to do, to provide you know these types of services. And so you know, I, I think of companies like Sinterra from Peter Hazelhurst, who used to be at Uber and Google before that, and Yodaly before that, as you know well, well know, and, uh, you know, Move from Wade Arnold as, Wade, I think Move is, you know, kind of straddles that world between being both a banking service provider as well as fintech as a provider. But I kind of see this as, you know, the, the flip side of the banking as a service type of thing, where... You know, you're enabling the financial institutions to better easily partner with the, the Fintechs because today the integration capabilities are are, are so poor that they hamper that. Uh, not to mention that, uh, you know, it's funny, I, I, I do my annual what's going on in banking survey and the data is all in and it'll be published in just a couple of weeks from when we are having this conversation. so it might even be out by the time this goes live. But, you know, well, this year I asked the respondents who are all from mid-sized banks and credit unions in the U.S. And I asked, how many full-time equivalents do you have dedicated to fintech partnerships in your organization? And about a quarter of both banks and credit unions said none. And there is a handful that have eight or ten or more, but on average, we're talking two. Jim, how much can you get done from a fintech partnership perspective with just two full-time people who have to identify, vet, negotiate, track, scale, deploy, and you actually probably deploy before you scale, so apologize for flipping those around, but you just can't get that much done, especially with the rest of the organization that has real jobs, for one, and has been doing double duty because of COVID.
0: And actually, Ron, that's like saying I only have two people dedicated to innovation, because Actually, the fintech partnerships is the way for most financial institutions to move ahead at scale in the innovation space.
1: You know, I wrote a piece a couple months ago saying banks don't need to innovate. And, you know, that's so antithesis to like everybody else. Oh, banks have to innovate. Well, no, they don't. What they actually have to do is deploy and scale innovation. They don't have to be the innovators. And you know what? Even Clayton Christensen said that because that's where I'm getting it from. Clayton Christensen so it's not me saying this; it's it's him, and he's the the, the guru on the expert on this, or was before he passed. And so, you know, the, you're absolutely right. Well, how are you going to do that with just two people? You can't, you know. And then dealing with all the technical issues. So I see this, this emerging space of fintech as a service emerging, uh, you know, maybe a lot of the banking as a service providers will kind of move into that, that realm as well. But it was really a conversation I had with Peter Hazelhurst that just really kind of locked in and go, wait, this is different than banking as a service. And I need to start kind of defining this and then talk to Wade. And he goes, yeah, yeah, no, no, I think you're on the right track with this. So uh, it's an emerging thing in my mind.
0: And it really, again, brings to bear the importance of taking all these innovations that have happened over the last several years with fintech organizations, as well as even some traditional banks, and really bringing them together, And and, which gets you to your fifth idea of what's going to happen this year. And and that's around core transformation. And it's interesting because you, you really don't address core transformation as this big thing that can be not done. But it's core transformation workarounds. It's working with, I see it as solution providers that can get you to where you need to be for the future, enabling the ability to take on fintech players and fintech as a service, as well as serving small businesses and building these these really good financial wellness tools. You need to have capabilities. You need to have cloud technology. But more importantly, you need a really good core capability where you're not just using band-aids and chicken wire to do that, But you actually speak to something that that I really believe in wholeheartedly, which is that it doesn't mean you have to disrupt the entire core systems. You've got to use what's out there to really look at how do I do workarounds to fix the parts that are broken and really upgrade everything, maybe in pieces, parts, which wasn't even capable three years ago. Is, Is that a correct assumption on my part?
1: You know, I think you're absolutely right. It's the idea that obviously at some point things do have to be integrated into the core, but you know there are feasible and economically feasible approaches to say well you know what we can go with some other fintech provider who's going to kind of handle that integration piece somewhere else and take care of the front end take care of the the actual transaction and interaction so that we're not reliant on the core to get this piece of functionality done and, you know, it was interesting back in December, I had just a couple of conversations. As I was starting to put this article together, it's not that I had four and was waiting for the fifth necessarily, but it was one those things where I, I did have four good ideas. I was like, nah, I really got to have number five for an article and had some conversations and, and realized what these guys were talking about was, you know, not just core transformation, because I think what a lot of, you know, I hear banks and credit unions talk about is core modernization and you know the idea is that well that's a still going to be a multi-year long term type of you know initiative or strategy and in the, what do you do in the meantime and this idea of like workarounds you know just sort of kind of appearing in conversation i said this is this is a good good candidate for a fifth trend
0: it's interesting too because i think we both agree that that it's easier now for small organizations to make the next move because there's so many players out there that have really fixed the things that were broken. And, and you know, organizations will say, yeah, but I got too many silos of data. You can't bring it all together to make good analytics. Well, you can There's players out there that know how to do it. doesn't matter who your core provider is. doesn't matter who you partner with already. It can be done. And, and it's actually finding those players that can do that. When we're going to move on from the trends and predictions to hit the two other articles you wrote re- recently for Forbes. The first one is on the big winners and losers for 2020. And... These could be debated forever because I think a lot. Of, there were a lot of good winners. There are a lot of disasters. There's people that would debate both ends of it. But from your perspective, what was the number one winner and the number one loser, I guess I would say, in the fintech and banking space in 2020?
1: On the winner side, I'd be hard pressed to choose one over another. My list didn't really rank them. But of the ones I, I listed, I would really have to say it's... Neck and neck between Stripe and Chime, you know both organizations just did incredible business in in 2020. They benefited a lot from the pandemic crisis. I know that sounds terrible, but I don't mean it that way. You know what I mean? It's just they took advantage of the change in be in, in consumer behavior. But more than the, just the change in consumer behavior, Jim, I, I put them on the list because. Stripe really has you know upped the game from an innovation perspective. Their announcement for Stripe Treasury, I think, was a real winning type of service to you know offer the platforms that they work with, like a Shopify, to be able to offer payment and banking services to the small businesses. I think that's absolutely huge, and I think you know although I've always been you know somewhat critical of Chime and its crazy valuation, I still really have trouble believing. That's a fourteen and a half billion dollar organization, but whatever it is, it's it's doing a good job of gaining new customers and and focusing on those hooks and those features that that consumers really want. So I I kind of put them at the top of the list of the winners. Uh, on the losers list, man, that was a tough one. You know, well, it wasn't that tough putting Robinhood on. I'm just. You know, I put them on my list last year as a loser. Yes, they continue to grow. They grow in valuation. That's not how I measure the or determine whether somebody's on the winner or loser list. But uh, I put them on the loser list because it just seems like every time you turn around, there's somebody charging them, you know, fining them or accusing them of violating something. And, you know, what gets me is, I just seem to have a really hard time reconciling how millennials keep talking about how they want to do business with companies whose values align with theirs and yet continue to do business with a, a company who's in the news every week for violating something else.
0: Well, and, and the reality is that if the market goes down this year, you know, it's been a straight up for the marketplace. So, you know, Robinhood hasn't had to really deal with the consumers that are going to get ticked off that the decisions they made. We're wrong. Yeah. And that's an environment that Robin hasn't never done really well at responding to the issues that have been brought up. And I keep on thinking, geez, that's a good point. You, know, you got you got this big thing on the future that you're going to have to respond in much the same way that other organizations have been needed to, but you've never had to do it before. Yeah. You know, if everything's flowing positively, it's like saying, you know what, Bitcoin agrees with my uh, personal philosophy when it's going straight up. You know, it's amazing how in 2018, Everybody loved it until it started going down. Then they started blaming them for what happened, you know, and saying, oh, this was a stupid move. So, you know, I, I think, you know, their challenge is still out there. Their biggest challenge, I think.
1: The uh, other loser on the list, and this one hurts me because I'm a big fan of credit unions. And I just think actually more accurately, I'm, I'm a big fan of credit union people. I, I like credit union people. I could care less if you're a banker or a credit union. I just, But I do like the credit union people. But I put them on the loser's list, Jim, because I don't think the numbers lie. It was NAFQ, I believe, maybe it was CUNA uh, Mutual who projected that, that membership growth for credit unions in 2020 was going to tr- drop to just 2% after being in the 4% range for a couple of years before that. Actually, they projected the 2020 growth would be 1.6% and then would only bump back up to 2% for 2021 and 2022. I also you know, have done a number of studies over the past year. I uh, did a study in January of 2020. I just completed one right now. The percentage of consumers who consider a credit union their primary institution has dropped from 14% to 10%. And when I looked at the, you know, the percentage of all checking account applications that have been opened up in the US in the past 3 years, the credit union's share has dropped basically by 50 percent from 18 percent down to about eight or nine percent. And so, you know, look, the numbers don't lie. I love the credit union people. But listen, as far as 2020 was concerned, you know, the mentality that they took into 2020 about the importance of the branch and the importance of face-to-face communication didn't pay off for them, you know, didn't make the, the switch that this is a you, you can build relationship through technology. It's not all about the branch. Your strength is not your, quote, service and your people. It's the services and value you provide. And so the, the other tough part about naming credit unions as a as a loser is that, look, there are a lot of credit unions who are doing really, really well. Yep. And so this yep. is not a blanket statement against credit unions, but the part of the problem is from a credit union industry perspective, if you think of credit unions as an industry, the growth and the profitability is very unevenly distributed between, you know, a relatively minority. And not necessarily, they're not necessarily all the big ones, but the less successful ones way outnumber the highly successful ones.
0: You know what, Ron? I put what I'm going to call mid-tier banks in the same category. And I think they get caught up in the legacy thinking and a lot of the credit unions as well as the mid-tier banks. When I talk about digital account opening or digital loan applications, there are still a large percentage of organizations that go, I don't want to make it too easy because I still believe that our advantage is having the person face-to-face with us. And I'm going, you're not listening. You're not listening. You haven't seen what's happened since the pandemic. That is not where consumers want to go. It's where you're forcing them to go. And as you said, you see it in account openings. Why are the largest percentage, by far greater than the percentage of market share, going to the biggest banks? Because you make it extraordinarily simple. You're, you're doing the basics in digital, right? You're Many of you are going well beyond that, but they're doing the basics, right? And all of a sudden, things like Erica, Bank of America, becomes a necessity as opposed to an add-on for many consumers. And that's what you're hoping to do. But unfortunately, if if no one's seeing my really friendly tellers or my really friendly staff unless they have a problem, that becomes a smaller and smaller advantage. It's what we used to talk about on Commerce Bank. You know, if people aren't coming into the branch anymore, the great pen or dog biscuit, how do you digitize that? How do you make that so that becomes a digital advantage? And certainly TD Bank has done a good job at trying to make that transformation, but you know, as we as we talk about the struggles, and I've at times said, you know, we've gone from the too big to uh, fail versus the too small to succeed mentality. You talked about mergers and acquisitions you'd like to see. And let's close out the podcast here with a discussion around what's the one you'd like to see, and then what's the one you think you're going to see?
1: I don't know if you saw the article or not, but this was my year-end uh, article. I did this back in at the end of 2019 as well. My very last fintech snark tank post of the year was a total snark fest of, you know, I was like, here's four performance metrics that that startups should use. And it was all, you know, made up stuff. Uh, and I did the same thing here with this year with, with the mergers. And I started it off on a more serious note, you know, quoting some statistics from S&P Global about deal volume. But then I said, OK, so, you know, what's here are some of the, the, the mergers we're going to see. I think, you know, Synovus will um, merge with City National Bank to create Sin City, uh, Huntington <laughs> and Banco Popular and People's Bank will all come together to create hunting popular people.
0: Now we gotta put TCF in there since since you wrote that article, you know you gotta you gotta figure out how you put TCF in that whole Huntington mix as well. So
1: Yeah no, I'm just gonna throw them out. They're out, they just don't fit, the, <laughs> they, don't the fit molds. Your,
0: they don't fit the snark tank. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I thought Dollar Bank would merge with UMB financial to create Dumb Bank. And you know, I don't think we we should leave the, the fintechs out of this. You know, I, I think Frost Bank, ING, and Cake will come together to create cake frosting. <laughs> and on the uh, the fintech side, yeah. you know, I see a big conglomeration there of you know nutmeg, mint, pepper, and clover all merging together to create the fintech spice rack.
0: Well, oh, and then you put that inside your lemonade, so you can you can you can go into new new territory there.
1: Absolutely, I wasn't thinking as forward as you were. So yeah, I was uh, you know I wasn't even really thinking seriously about the merger stuff at all. Do you see? I
0: mean, with what has gone on at the end of twenty twenty. Do you see some uh, big mergers and acquisitions next year just because of the need to, to get scale and upgrade You know, the whole innovation factor, I guess?
1: Well, I can tell you that from the annual uh, What's Going On survey I do, most of the respondents are much more optimistic about 2021 being a better year for, uh, for deals, both on the bank and, and credit union side, and interestingly, maybe even more so on the credit union side, than than on the the bank side, so you know I think you know when you look at the actual numbers from S and P Global, the number of deals that were done in 2020 was you know they dropped by more than 50 percent from the prior couple of years. So I think there's huge pent up demand for mergers. I think this is a, just an ongoing for the next couple of years type of situation where you you know you can say all you want that there are ways for you to you know, get economies of scale without having to merge. But I think the, the way most bankers, bankers and credit union execs are going to figure out how to do this is through mergers and, you know, all kind of leading up to that, you know, at least five, if not $10 billion asset level.
0: Well, and it's interesting because you, you look at, you know, what uh, bb and and SunTrust said at the beginning of their merger thing that, that, that the merger was going to make it so there was more funds available to become much more aggressive on the digital front and, time will tell and my concern is that you know sometimes you put two banks together you make a bigger bank and that's all you get out of that it's going to be interesting to see if organizations can truly transform i you know i looked at what what happened last year and it, it wasn't really mergers or acquisitions but you look at the partnerships that a company like marcus did goldman sachs did and and i actually look forward to checking out you know what have they done next because they're actually at the cusp of becoming as if they are not already an extraordinarily major player, just because of the way they're looking at the business. And they have the benefit that not many do, which is a great brand name combined with scale, as far as what I'll call a fintech player. And it's going to be fun to watch the biggest fintech players, as well as those organizations that have really stepped out. But um, Ron, I want to thank you. Thanks for having me, buddy. This is the second time you've been on the show, and I think last year was right around the same time. I, I tell everybody, Please read. Please subscribe to Forbes. It's not the most expensive subscription in the world if for no other reason than to read Ron's article every well, week. Well, you
1: know, they can read the article without subscribing. Go to, just go to Fintech, Snark Tank. You got five free articles a month. I generally publish five. So just read my stuff on Forbes. And, and if you like the other stuff- I didn't
0: realize it was five a month. I So Forbes got me to hook without me reading everything, which is traditional for me. But again, it's a great perspective. Ron brings a lot of, of not only his own personality, But more importantly, a lot of data into the equation to make his projections, but also to make all of his articles. There's some just tremendous ones there. Even the ones that maybe didn't see as many eyeballs are sometimes the best. They deal with specific issues that are important to bankers. So, Ron, again, thank you very much. Always great to talk to you. And and as I always try to mention, I wouldn't be where I am today doing what I am today if it wasn't for a meeting we had in San Diego, probably about probably a decade ago now where I got inspired by what you are doing in the industry as far as sharing information, sharing insights. And as, as you know, the only way we stay relevant is by continually learning and your ability to do research and continually learn about what's going on and then sharing it with everybody, usually without any cost at all, is what keeps us going. So again. Thanks, Ray. Thank you a lot. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed. Ray is the top five banking podcast. If you enjoy what we are doing, please be sure to subscribe to the Bank and Transform on your favorite podcast app. In addition, please take a few minutes to provide a review. It lets us know how we're doing and it allows us to get the best possible guests on the show. Finally, be sure to catch my articles on the Financial Brand and look for our research in the Digital Bank Report on the future of financial marketing, the use of data analytics to improve customer experience. Our 2021 trends and predictions, as well as how to build a powerful personalization engine in banking and financial services. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A big thank you to our producer, Leon Longbreak, and our audio engineer, Sean Ruhl-Hoffman, as well as our video engineer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, make every day a learning experience.